Well, good morning. Great to have you all here today. We are in the middle of a study going through the book of Mark. So if you have your Bible or maybe an app, phone app, uh, turn, go ahead and be turning to Mark chapter 6. And what we're going to find out, the, the passage right prior to the one that we're going to be looking at today was the feeding of the 5,000. Paul Donaldson went through that. And there's a real famous pastor or preacher in the United States today by the name of Warren Wiersbe. And so last week's passage, he, he entitled that passage, The Lord Provides. Now the passage we're going to look at today, he entitles it, The Lord Protects. And I was thinking that's really interesting, but when you think of so many of the tragic events that have just taken place, it's, it's almost a conundrum. The Lord provides, the Lord protects. And Paul talked about 23rd Psalm. You think of Isaiah 43. And yet it, it was just a week ago exactly today that a gunman, a deranged gunman, walks into First Baptist Church, First Baptist Church in Sutherland, Texas, and kills 26 people uh, with a semi-automatic. And you think, well, the Lord provides, the Lord protects. How does this add up? Or just a week or so before that, New York, eight weeks before that, 58 killed in Las Vegas. So ha has it ever made you stop and ask the question, why? Why does God allow innocent people to be overrun by evil? And if Jesus is going to be with us, if he's going to protect us, why? Why am I allowed to go through such pain and, and suffering and, and trials and, and tribulations? I was just reading this last week. It reminded me of C.S. Lewis. And many of you are familiar with the, the spiritual depth of a C.S. Lewis. And when his wife died, he, he wrote this book, A Grief Observed, and after his wife died, he said, where is God? Go to him when, when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face? The sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside? And after that, just silence. You might as well have just turned away. And the longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence becomes. Why is he so present, a commander in our time of prosperity, and so very absent in a time of trouble? That must have been exactly how the disciples felt in the passage that we're going to look at today. In the middle of the night, in the middle of a storm, sent out by Jesus with very little hope of survival. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever had those kinds of questions? I'll never forget, we had our, our youngest, and then we had another baby. Uh, Rosie was born, and then 18 months later, she develops a very severe case of bacterial spinal meningitis. And we got her to the hospital in the, in the nick of time. And when they did this, the spinal tap, they said they had never seen spinal fluid so infected. He, was, he said it was as white as milk. 
and we thought for sure we were preparing ourselves to lose her. I can just remember going home. I can remember the little crib upstairs, putting my arms through that little crib, kneeling on the floor, just rubbing her crib. And certainly the same words that C.S. Lewis uttered earlier. Why? Where is God? In the 1500s, there was a very famous Spanish monk by the name of St. John of the Cross. And he was an incredible discipler of his disciples. And the way he discipled them was he wrote treatises. One of his most famous treatises is still produced today. It's called Dark Night of the Cross. And basically, he just says that there are occasions in every believer's life when God appears to turn his face away and seems surprisingly absent. So whether it be St. John of the Cross, whether it be C.S. Lewis, certainly this passage contend that there are times in our lives that seem to be very necessary and crucial for our spiritual development. Every single one of you have gone through a dark night of the soul. Many of you probably right now, I, I talked to a few people after the service, after the first service, people right now are going through some very dark nights. And you're wondering, why does it seem like I'm standing alone? Why does it seem like God is so very distant? Well, the fact of the matter is our vision statement says that we're here to help people, help them understand what is the hope and the healing power of the gospel. And, and if we're going to give hope to people, somehow we're going to have to help people understand this conundrum. First of all, let me just say, questions like these are very appropriate and very valid to ask. Questions just like these were questions that were asked by the forefathers of our faith. They were asked by Job. They were asked by David. They were asked by Asaph. They were asked by Jeremiah. They were asked by a number of the prophets. That very question. And thirdly, despite their agonizing with God, none of them... And thirdly, despite their agonizing with God, found philosophical answers to solve counter which transcend what they did find and what we'll find out today is they did have and receive a personal so if I were to give you the big idea of the message today or the thesis statement of the message today I think what, what God wants to teach us from Mark 6 is that there are going to be storms that come in life and those storms will seek to drown you but God the great I am is with us and his presence, uh, with his presence, we have nothing to fear, not even death itself. We don't need philosophical answers and responses regarding suffering. What we desperately need is a personal encounter with the living God which transcends pain and suffering. First, I want us to look at the necessity of dark nights. 
A dark night of the soul, folks, is a reality for every single believer. It's necessary for your spiritual growth. So expect it. Notice in verses 45 to 46 how they were, he was, they were commanded to go into the storm. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. So again, this, this happens. If, picture with me. Here's the Sea of Galilee. You can sort of picture it. It looks like a, like a sort of an oval, and there sort of comes to a point at the top and comes around. They're way up here in the northwest segment. They just had the feeding of the, of the 5,000. Um, Herod's, Herod's palace is... Herod, Herod and his palace can see where this is happening, where it's taking place. And so we find out from John chapter 6 that the people... Uh, that experience the feeding of the 5,000 know that Herod is now coming. He's coming and the the people are there and they want to take Jesus by force to be their king. That's what John tells us in John 6. So Jesus says, okay, disciples, get in your boat. You're over here in the northwest segment. Get in your boat and go to the other side of the lake. Go all the way to Bethsaida, about six miles away, into a ferocious wind. It's a, it's a horrible wind. So Jesus is at the point now where he needs to disciple his disciples. His disciples desperately need to understand who he is. They don't get it yet. We're going to find out in this passage, verse 52, that after the feeding of the 5,000, you would think they'd be grown up, encouraged, but their hearts are hardened. They don't understand who Jesus really is. They see some of the miracles he's doing, but they don't understand who he is. So he needs them to understand that. He needs them to understand uh, that they have got to learn to trust him, but their hearts were hardened, and so he's going to show them how to begin to face their fears. So he wants to put his disciples in a position of force. So did you notice in verse 45, immediately he made Interesting word. It's a word that means you could, uh, Brown Driver Briggs, lexicon of the, of the uh, New Testament, says it's a word that means forced. In other words, it's against their will. He forced them. He compelled them. This wasn't a request. He, he's compelling them. He's forcing them. Another translation would be urged or pressed his disciples to get into the boat and go to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. So they're in the boat. When evening came, verse 47, the boat was out at sea. And he, just right above, so there's feeding of the 5,000. He's sending them over here to Bethsaida, right up here. He typically would go up on that mountain uh, to pray. There's a a cave, Aramos, where he probably was in that cave, the cave of Aramos, observing the lake. He could see the entire lake. And while they were making their way painfully, into the winds that were against them. And about at the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. A guy by the name of Bargnell Pixner. He is a, a, a German-Italian guy. Uh, he lived in Israel for a number of years. He lived right on the Sea of Galilee for 25. He's the head of a monastery there. Brilliant, brilliant man, exegete in, in Greek and Hebrew, but he also has PhDs in biblical 
archaeology, biblical geography, and biblical uh, topography. Brilliant man. And he wrote this. He said that particular night, a cold east wind suddenly springs out. It's called a shakara, dreaded by fishermen. At the end of winter, it became particularly severe, endangering people on the lake. It becomes impossible to sail or to row against that wind. And that's what Jesus sent them into. He made them. He compelled them. He had to because they knew the wind. They knew it was impossible to go, to go against that wind. But he makes them get into the boat, makes them go across what John would say was called a mega. We'd use a, we get our word mega for a mega wind. They had to go against this mega wind. And yet, to me, the beautiful side is this. He's compelling them to go right in the middle of a trial of tribulation, suffering, and he's up on the mountain, but he sees the whole thing, and he's praying for them. Now, I think that's an awesome picture, because that's all of us. As we go through trials, tribulations, Jesus is high priestly uh, function of praying for us, he, because he loves us. He loves his disciples, even though they were straining at their oars and actually, we're going to find out, they were going backwards, actually backwards. So he waits there in the cave or on the mountain. They, they head out first watch of the night, six to nine o'clock. No Jesus. He's just watching them strain. Nine to twelve, second watch of the night. They're still straining at the oars, um, making no progress whatsoever. One to three o'clock, third watch of the night, nothing. Jesus waits until the fourth watch of the night, somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., when it is at the darkest point and the winds are the most fierce, that he comes to them while they're rowing. Have, have you ever felt that way in your life? But you feel like you're doing God's will. You feel like you're trusting him. And all you do is go backwards. I remember in 1978, I was in seminary going through a discouraging time. I saw this book called Three Steps Forward, Two Steps Back. Folks, this wasn't three steps forward. This wasn't two steps back. It was two steps forward, eight steps back. They were going in absolute reverse. Then it was blowing them backwards. I remember when I felt God's call so strongly when I, when I was in medical school that God wanted me to go to seminary. I felt it so strong. And so I leave medical school and I go to the cemetery, uh, seminary. And, and, it, <laughs> and I felt exactly, it was like two steps forward, eight steps back. And you just feel so helpless, helpless. And I think we often find ourselves in the middle of a storm because, because we obey God. Did you catch that? Oftentimes we'll find ourselves in the middle of a storm, not because we're resistant to God, but because we're obeying God. God made us go out there. He, he pressed us. He compelled us. He urged us. He forced us to do that. Now, what makes a lot of sense is when I disobey God, I experience storms. That makes sense. For, for a child, they disobey the parents to get a spanking. That makes sense. What doesn't make sense is doing exactly what you feel God wants me to do, and all you do is get beat up. That makes no sense. The storms come, and all we do is go backwards. Please see that obedience to God does not prevent 
storms in your life. We face storms in life so we can see God in the storm. Notice verse 48. So he sees that they're making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he comes to them walking on the sea and he means to pass them by. You see, Jesus desperately wants his disciples to see him for who he really is. You saw the passage before in Mark 4. Jesus is with them in the boat, he's asleep in the back, and there's a big storm, he wakes up, peace be still, and everything's quiet. This time, he's not in the boat. But the disciples aren't learning. They, they didn't even learn through the feeding of the 5,000 they didn't learn. And so now they're all by themselves going backwards. And he now says, he meant to pass them by. And you think how harsh does he really mean to pass them by? I can see where you would think that reading the, the English text, but I think when we understand a little bit of Old Testament background, we'll understand what Jesus was really trying to do. That word, pass by, that particular word, uh, some Greek experts, Gundry, for example, will say whenever that word is used, plus in the context of divinity, always equals theophany. So, for example, in Exodus 33, Exodus 34, Moses desperately wanted to see the glory of God. But in Exodus 33, 22, he says, And behold, the Lord passed by, or I've passed him by. I've, I've covered him. I put him in the cleft of the rock, put my hand over so he couldn't see my face. But I passed by. It's the very presence of Yahweh God. Or... In the case of Elijah, same thing with Elijah, 1 Kings 19. The, the Lord, he's crying out to see God. He's crying out for God's presence. And so God passes by so that Elijah sees, Elijah, I'm not in the wind. I, I'm not in the earthquake. I'm not even in the fire, but I am in that still, small voice. Jesus desperately wanted the disciples to see who he was, that he was God. So what does he do? In the middle of the storm, in the middle of these heavy, heavy winds that you can't even row against, in danger of your own life, at the darkest part of the night, Jesus comes walking on this tumultuous sea. Why would he do that? It's because throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh God, the Lord God is the one who tramples on the waves. You see that in Job chapter 9. You see it in, in chapter 38. You see it in Psalm 77, who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples on the waves of the sea. Now it's Jesus walking on the water, trampling on the waves of the sea. Jesus desperately wants us, like the disciples then, to see who he is in the middle of the storms of life. That he is the one who is the Lord, who passes by. He is the one who is Yahweh, God, trampling on the seas. The disciples 
got the picture that he was the Messiah. They got the picture that he was doing messianic miracles, that he was healing and that he was raising the dead and that he was giving sight to the blind and, and hearing to the deaf. They were getting that, but they didn't see that he was the Son of God, God incarnate, Yahweh come down among his people to save them from their sins. They needed a divine encounter. They didn't need a philosophical response to the issue of pain and suffering. They needed a divine encounter with Yahweh God. Notice how their perception of this dark night. When they saw him walking on the sea, they, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out, for they all saw him. They, their response was they were terrified. Immediately, though, he spoke to them and said, Take heart, take heart, I am. That's the word he used. Take heart, I am. Do not be filled with phobia. Don't be filled with fear. He, got, he wasn't invited into the boat. They thought he was a ghost. But he gets into the boat and the wind ceases. And they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. So it was the word frightened. They were shaken up. They were, it's the word uh, confusion, terrified. Um, because they never pictured Jesus as Yahweh God. They never pictured Jesus as the one who would trample on the waves of the sea. They never pictured Jesus as the I am. They never pictured Jesus as the one who would pass by. So he speaks to them. Take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. You know, the amazing thing is, painfully, the seas get it, the wind gets it, they see who has power over the wind and the waves. They get it. But the disciples just don't get it. They respond with phobia. And their hearts were hardened. Can I ask you, what are you afraid of in the storm? What storms cause you to fear? Maybe you've lost a job. Is it cancer? Heart disease? Divorce? Financial instability? Singleness? Your job or a particular person? I'll tell you, fear had two powerful impacts upon the way that the disciples saw things in the middle of the storm. You know what fear did to these disciples? Number one, it kept them from recognizing Jesus. You know, later in this passage, we won't look at it, but when he's on shore and, and the people who responded to the demon-possessed person, you know, they see Jesus immediately and recognize him, and they, they want those healing powers. They, they want to be healed too. But fear kept them from recognizing Jesus. Sometimes I think we are so afraid in the middle of the storm uh, that we're just like C.S. Lewis. Where's God? I feel, I feel like a door has been slammed in my face and then double bolted from the inside. Our fear keeps us 
from really experiencing the presence of God. And then secondly, their fear not does more than just keep us from seeing Jesus. Their fear actually caused them to be terrified of Jesus. That was the word, terrified of Jesus. No wonder he says, take heart, I am. Don't be afraid. The number one command in the entire Bible, don't be afraid. You see, listen, we need, I know people you're talking to at the university, you know, they want the philosophical answer for the problem of pain. But I'll tell you what, it's not going to help. The only thing that will help is a divine encounter with the living God. That's what will help to transcend pain and suffering. Did you notice that the abandonment really was more perceived than real? They thought Jesus had abandoned him because they didn't rec- they couldn't recognize him because of their fear. It was more perceived than real. But the New Testament promises for us in Ephesians 1 that you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Bible t- teaches us and, and encourages us in Hebrews 13 that he promises he will never leave us. He will never, ever forsake us. He has promised to always, lo, I will be with you always. I'm going to be with you in the midst of the trial, in the suffering, in the dark night of the soul, in death, in all of eternity. So what's the benefit then? having us walk through times like that. I think the sense of distance that we feel prepares us ultimately uh, for the incredible sense of intimacy when Jesus reveals himself to us when he comes as Yahweh trampling on our suffering, trampling on the seas. Dark nights open eyes to experience the divine love of God. It's times like that that we understand the divine love of God more than any others. It's times like that that we understand the chassid, the the covenant-keeping love of God more than at any other time. We understand the tenacious love of God. We understand how patient he is with us. Isn't it awesome? I mean, Jesus could have given up on the disciples a thousand times. And yet he's there praying for them in that, in that cave, on that mountain, praying for them, praying for them, coming to them, giving them every chance over and over and over and over again to those disciples. And he does the same with you and me. He never gives up on us. He continues reaching out to us, helping us, revealing himself uh, to us because we're slow learners. But, but eventually, eventually, We're going to get it because the God we hear is the God of the gospel, the God of the gospel who gives hearing to the deaf and sight to the blind. So I don't want you to miss the movement of how Jesus works. Here is the movement of how he'll work in your life. Number one, typically Jesus will move you toward your fear. If you really want to grow in Christ, he doesn't keep you from it. He'll move you toward your fear. But he doesn't just move 
move you toward it and leave you there, then Jesus will actually enter into your fear with you. That's the beauty of this passage. Here I am. You know, I, I'm face to face with the fear of my life. And then all of a sudden, here comes Yahweh. In the cleft, while I am in the cleft of the rock, he's going to pass by. It is Yahweh God who tramples on the seas, who tramples on my fears. That he doesn't keep me from suffering. He doesn't keep me from trials or tribulations. He enters them with me. Lo, I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. Folks, it's just exactly like Daniel. Daniel in the lion's den. You learn that story from the time you're a little kid in Sunday school. When Daniel was in the lion's den, there was somebody else in there. It was the incarnate Christ keeping the mouth of that lion shut. He enters into the fear with you. It's Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and I bet those, those two friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all three of them, are in the fire. But there's a fourth man in the fire. God himself is in that flame with them. We've all faced all kinds of storms and lions and furnaces in life. Cancer, heart disease. Now, it might not be as easy to see as a lion, but let me tell you, it's just as real and just as scary. So look for Jesus when you're in a storm. Please don't fall into this trap. You're in a storm and the moment that C.S. Lewis went through, you're in a storm and then you're so quick to blame Jesus for allowing you to get in it. I was just witnessing to a lady. She works at North Dodge. Uh, yesterday morning. It was yesterday morning I was wit witnessing to her. And uh, she asked, well, what are you going to talk about tomorrow? So we went through this. And she said, oh, I had a good friend. And, and she was religious like you. And then she went through a really hard time. And she said, well, forget all this religious stuff. Don't let storms cause that to happen to you, to drive you away from Jesus. Jesus puts him there to drive you to him. Thirdly, Jesus calls upon us to trust him with our fears. It's amazing when you put your fear and Jesus Christ together. Fear is what shrinks and Jesus just gets bigger. And then lastly, Jesus then will move us away from our fears. I, I said Jesus will move you away from your fear. I did not say Jesus will take you out of the suffering. I said Jesus will. Once you allow him into your life, once you trust him, Jesus will move you away from your fear, even though you may still be in the middle of suffering and pain. It's because the I am is there. And with the I am, there is peace. There is joy. There is contentment. Think of the, all the verses the Apostle Paul talks about. There can be peace and joy and contentment in spite of being in jail, in spite of the circumstances, in spite of the pain. He's just saying, you know, welcome to the land of serotonin. You know, forget dopamine. Dopamine 
you know, you've got to have a fix for that kind of happiness. You know, the Hawkeyes have to win for you to be happy. You have to have alcohol for you to be happy. You have to have the right kind of junk food for you to be happy. That's dopamine. Jesus is saying, you invite me in the boat, you understand who I am, and I will flood you with serotonin. In the midst of trials and tribulations, you can have joy and peace and happiness. You know, uh, Pastor Doug's going to come up in just a few minutes. I think one of the fears that a lot of people have is just financial fears. I think when we look at at tendencies that Parkview has have toward giving. There's some people who really, really get it. I mean, they, they get it and, and they freely joy, joy, that's the word, to joyfully give. And others are, are hesitant. And, and I think some of it might just be what we're talking about today. Some of it just might be the fear. And to me, Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving offering is just an incredible time. To, uh, for Jesus to allow us to confront that fear. Now, I even think as a church, as a whole, you know, it's easy for us to get filled with fear. We might, you know, I think we all feel really good about the direction God has us as a church, where we're going, what we're doing. I feel super, super good about that. But sometimes it's like, okay, we're heading into the wind and, we're, you know, two steps forward, three steps back. But we feel real good about where Jesus is sending us. And yet you go, Wow. And it might be just the time of the year, you know, things things get low. Um, but for you, for, for me, for all of us, I would just say, let's use Thanksgiving offering as a time for God to stretch our faith. Maybe finances for you is a, something that you fear. Ask Jesus into it. Look to Jesus. Say, Jesus, how, how can you stretch my faith just a little bit? Many of you are so generous givers and we're so thankful to God for that. And maybe God's going to stretch you a little bit more there. But but maybe if you've never taken a step of faith uh, to really give uh, generously or joyfully, what an awesome time would be. Jesus, help me here. Maybe maybe just this Thanksgiving offering. Give me a taste of what it would be uh, to give that kind of way. And uh, Pastor Doug will talk about that in a second. Philippians 4, 19 says, My God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. You know, it might even be in, in terms of service. You might be just fearful to take a step forward in serving the Lord. Or, and we talk about community groups all the time. And maybe you're just sort of more personal. You're sort of afraid to get involved with other people. Might have to say something. Might have to reveal something. Just take a step of faith and you know the Bible just over and over, we've talked about it a lot, how good it is to be involved with other believers in community. We've talked about that a lot. It might be an opportunity to stop at the, at the information booth and just say, you know, Lord, it's, it's time now for me to take these steps of faith, to invite Jesus into those fears and uh, to face those fears, whether it be giving, whether it be serving, whether it be um, just community with one another. Let Jesus help. Help us uh, face those fears. Bring him into the boat uh, with us. Well, let me pray, and then Pastor Doug will come. You might be here today in a storm. You might be here just really experiencing the dark night of the soul, and, and life to you might seem like it's going backwards, and you're tempted to cry out a lot like C.S. Lewis cried out, Where's God? And Jesus just wants you to see him 
for who he is. He loves you so much, so, so much that he died, just like we celebrate in communion. He died on the cross to save you. Uh, trust him with your life. Trust him with your soul. Let Jesus enter your fear, your circumstances. Um, just like he says, hey, if you're a labor, if you are heavy laden, you know, come to me. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. You'll find rest, peace, joy, contentedness in your soul. Even in the middle of a storm, you can find contentment and joy and peace. You know, Jesus is the gospel. So Jesus, since you are the gospel and you are the good news, uh, thank you for loving us so much. And we want to trust you now. We want to trust you, the great I am. We want to trust you, the one who can trample on the seas. And we want to rest in you and fear not. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.